Chapter 4 of Radio Boys in the Secret Service. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Radio Boys in the Secret Service by J.W. Duffield. Chapter 4 See in London in a Fog. London. Guy forgot all about his poor eyesight, except to regret occasionally that he was forced to take his first view of a great city through colored glasses. The old world had been almost a mystic atmosphere to his mind from his earliest reading days. In his younger boyhood, he had entertained some inclusive and confusing ideas concerning persons and things far removed from his daily association. He had wondered if so great a man as the President of the United States were real flesh and blood, and even now he could not dismiss lightly some of his myth-fed mental pictures of Europe, as if the latter were located on a distant and doubtful nurtured planet of another universe. The grass that grows over there look like the grass that grows on our lawn was the question that had come to him sometimes as he studied in school the history of the country over which hung the storied glamour of king arthur and robin hood and when he for the first time got near enough to a patch of little green blades in london to pluck one and examine it he felt a flush of confusion at the foolishness of the act Guy was impressed with the immensity of the city before they reached the railroad terminal, but that impression became a prolonged thrill of metropolitan wonder as he and his mother left the train and moved through the throng of many nationalities, through the long line of cabs waiting for passengers. Here he noticed a marked distinction between the old and new world. New York with its dash and go, its modern buildings and sunny people. London, old and grim, brooding through its vial of smoke and soot on its antiquated buildings and solemn people. Their hotel they found to be a favorite stopping place for Americans and excellently located for visitors wishing to see the city. Guy and his mother were soon comfortably provided for and sought refreshments and rest after their journey's end. On the following day, they set out to meet the specialist, Dr. Spray. They found him at one of the big hospitals of the city. He had been informed of their coming, but was unable to make an examination of the boy's eyes that day. They had to be content with an appointment two days later. Guy made friends rapidly wherever he went, and in London, several such acquaintances contributed much to the interest of his visit. One of these was a clerk of the hotel, two years older than the young American. This clerk, whose name was Arthur Fletcher, made his friendship doubly acceptable to Guy by reason of his volunteer usefulness. He knew London like a book and was ever ready with his information when needed. Occasionally, Guy and Arthur would go out to see London by night. During these walks, the former plied his English friend with questions so industriously that his own fond of information grew rapidly. The second of these occasions proved particularly memorable. It was early March and pleasant weather when the fogs lifted or were blown away. London has little low temperature even in the middle of winter the most disagreeable feature of the atmosphere being its heavy, smoke-laden mist. On the evening, in the question, a thick fog has settled over the city, making it difficult for one to distinguish the features of another even under a street light and at how-de-do proximity. Guy still wore his amber glasses, which caused the vapor to look weird in lighted faces. He had been receiving daily treatments to straighten his eyes, and it was uncertain as yet whether he would have to undergo an operation. Mrs. Burton would have protested against his going out in the fog, but the specialist had said that he need take no particular precautions, except that he must not read and he must not lose sleep. I'll show you London in a fog, said Artie, as he was familiarly known because of a constitutional suggestion of effeminacy in him. Nevertheless, in spite of this appearance, he was a vigorous youth. 
We won't see much London, I'm afraid, laughed Guy. We'll see London in its nightgown, said the clerk. The city looks like a ghost now, and there's some ghostly things going on in this village. You can bet it. It was like wading in thin water overhead deep. This is what it was, in fact. In ten minutes, Guy had lost all reckoning of the points of the compass. We're going to have some fun tonight, said Artie as he stepped along briskly. We'll get over on some of the quiet streets and see what we find there. What do you mean? inquired Guy. Do you know where we are right now? asked Artie evasively. Why, no, not exactly. What direction are we from Trafalgar Square? East, aren't we? You're wrong. You're lost. I guess I am, admitted Guy with a laugh. That's what I brought you out for, to get you lost, Artie announced gaily. It's part of seeing London in a fog. We're on Shaftesbury Avenue, going towards Piccadilly. I'll get you lost again in a minute. Suddenly, Guy saw the waving of a light before them like the swath of a scythe in a hayfield. It swung across their path. What's that? asked the young American. That's a bobby, replied the clerk. A bobby? Yes, a policeman. You call him cops in New York. He's looking for strangers in a fog and steering clear on the rocks. They continued to wade through the next several squares, passing two other bobbies on the way. Meanwhile, Guy found himself wondering what would be the next number on the program. I wonder if it's going to be like a hazing freshman, he mused. If it is, I'll take my medicine without a squirt. It'll be alright, just so he doesn't walk me into the tongs. There was a good many pedestrians moving up and down Charing Cross Road. They seemed not to be inconvenienced by the fog, passing one another like fish in water. Guy could not see them, but he could hear their footsteps, which seemed firm and unhesitant. He heard no collisions or evidence of such. How does it happen that nobody runs into anybody else? inquired the young American as he walked along with one hand on his companion's arm. Oh, everybody's used to it, replied Artie with an air of experience. I can dodge an express train if I don't see it until it's two feet away. You're very clever, assured Guy with laughing sarcasm. But suppose the fellow coming your way is a green one, like me. What then? I've got to be smart enough for both. There, see? If that guy hadn't known, this business, you both had your headlights pushed in. The American's youth's awkwardness produced a carved grunt from a portly individual who proved to be surprisingly agile. Artie caught his companion by the sleeve and jerked him aside. The pass was effective without a touch. You'll learn how to do it after a few more narrow escapes, assured the hotel clerk. Take this advice. Never get excited and always turn to the left. To the left? Yes, having you noticed? Everyone takes the left side of the sidewalk here, and the drivers take the left side of the street. I thought there was something funny, but I didn't figure out what it was. Guy, this is where everybody stands on his head, isn't it? It is. We hop along our hair pretty well, don't we? We know the man at uses his head to get along in the world gets along a lot better. Don't people who live here ever get lost in the fog? No, that's another case of using our head or part of it. We smell directions here. Didn't you hear that in... Englishmen can make his nose work further than any other nationality on earth. Presently, they turned into a cross street where they did not meet so many people. They advanced one square and a half, then suddenly, Artie called a halt. Stand still and keep quiet, he whispered, gripping Guy's arm warningly. Don't make a sound. What's the matter? asked the other boy, also in a whisper. There's trouble ahead. Listen. Both were silent for some moments, during which they heard voices, seemingly not more than twenty feet ahead. One was a gruff, heavy voice and was giving orders. The other vibrated and trembling, whining tones, begging for mercy. Don't take my money. Don't take my money, he pleaded. It's all I've got in the world, and I'll starve. Oh, stow that, was the merciless answer. You've got plenty of where that come from, you old mister. Move out in the middle of the street and don't make another sound or... The rest of the sentence 
after seemingly expressing dirt was inaudible to the boys. Guy's sympathy was aroused at once. We ought to help him, he suggested. We're not going to get mixed up in it, replied Artie. Leave it to me. The victim seemed cowed into silence, for he seized his whimper as the highwayman drove him out of the way of pedestrians. Their footsteps could be heard on the pavement. Run, pal, the bobbies is coming. This cry of warning came from Artie and was intended evidently for the hold-up man. The ruse was successful, for, with an oath, the footpad dashed away, his rapidly patterned shoes on the pavement giving evidence of his panic. That's the way to handle a case, that kind, and you don't get into trouble, said Artie wisely. We'll be held up next, warned Guy, as he continued on their way, leaving the mister to take care of himself. Not much chance, was the clerk's reply. They don't stop two together, especially boys who ain't supposed to carry a lot of money anyway. But Artie's confidence proved unwarranted. After the boys had proceeded two blocks further, a man suddenly stepped up and covered them with a pistol, commanding gruffly, Quick, now, out in the street. I'll shoot if you make a sound. End of chapter 4